Uh, hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 100 of Snideful Inside the Writer's Room. It's a centennial. This, yeah, this, the, the centennial. Um, excited children noises and confetti. Of course. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Even Craig will yay. Yay. We'll hear Craig's voice for the first time in like a year. <laughs> um, yeah, we've done we've done ninety nine of these things. We, I think we've done a couple more if you throw in all the exclusives. We've done three or four exclusives over time, so we're at over a hundred recordings. But this is in the main line of of storyboarding and whatnot. This is the Tucker and Todd Snifle number one hundred. Yeah, this is the one we put the one o o on. And so we had decided uh, when we started doing anniversaries, because we've actually done two now, on our anniversaries that we would do sort of origin stories for some of our characters. And so far we've done how Tucker and Todd met and then kind of how they came to be in the one year one and year two. And so for for the one hundos, every time we break off a new hundo, uh, we're going to do... <laughs> we're gonna I like that as a phrase. Break off a hundo? I took that from Comedy Bang Bang. Well, credit to them then, because it's pretty good. <laughs> Let me just break off a hundo like That's it's a cool. Kit Kat. <laughs> it does break me off a piece of that hundo. Um, every time we break off a hundo, we're going to do a recap of the plot, because in each episode, we've added on whole new swaths of detail into what our universe is and what's going on. And we've we've restarted and restored and rebooted a couple times. So uh, for anyone who happens to be joining on episode 100, here is a little summary. Not a little summary. It's going to be a big, fat fucking summary. Hopefully it summarizes sufficiently. When I woke up this morning, I was thinking about doing like a a minor reformat. I thought it would be kind of funny if this was the top 100 things that have happened in Snidefall and we just went 100 points down through the episodes. That is interesting. Do we have, I don't think, do we have 100? In this list, we have at least 100 because to make this list, I just went episode by episode and picked a thing out of the summaries I'd already written. This oh. is based on the this is based on the summary, so this is at least a hundred lines. For the and most I part, I did add a couple. Yeah. Oh, yeah. True. So we're yeah we're over. So we've got we don't, lots to work with. Yeah, we'll just roll through it chronologically. So in the beginning, <laughs> we don't <only> have <laughs> the a beginning. Time, the time <laughs> before time. In the black before the black. The long before. ago time. A long time ago in a galaxy that is precisely this one. A remorseful mad scientist creates a, a magnificent <laughs> machine, a god computer. So, yeah, are we calling him a remorseful mad scientist? Was mad scientist his role? Uh, yeah, I would say mad scientist is. I don't know if that was what it said, you know, on his business card or anything, but that is the sort of <laughs> the archetypal character. <laughs> That's the archetypal <laughs> character that he is. Because it was a mad quest for immortality. Right. So is this one, this is Socrates, right? Yeah. So in our world, as you will come to discover through this timeline, we have a number of philosophers that we've co-opted into various characters. And we started with Plato, so we'll we'll get to that eventually. But chronologically, Mm -hmm. oh, Jesus, I'm (laughs) double burping. (laughs) It's not like a fucking velociraptor. 
Clever <laughs> girl. Um, we co-opted philosophers. We co-opted philosophers, and that one begat the other, and eventually we ended up with Socrates, and we're calling Socrates a mad scientist archetyped uh, who created the the deity in our universe. Yeah. The god, the god computer. Yeah, he didn't create our universe. He created the creator of our universe. Yeah. K- kind, of, kind of a demiurge. Demiurge? Whatever that word is. It, it's, a, it's a Gnostic thing. And I'm trying to remember, I think God computer, I don't, I don't remember why. Was it just because of those memes? You posted a picture of like a giant computer in the sky and we were like, that's awesome. We should have that. I can't remember the origin of why we wanted specifically if there was a, sh- a show or a movie that I was watching at the time, because that's where most of this comes from. <laughs> just whatever happens to interest us at the time. We watch them and go, that's cool. We need a version of that. I've always been fascinated by the, de- the idea of a clockwork universe. Yeah, and yeah, it might have been a little bit because of, oh, you know what? I think it might have been a lot of it because of Craig and wanting to have like a planet. Yeah, I think we were trying to say that the Internet came from a planet. And in order to have the Internet come from a planet, there sort of had to be a god of that planet who was more machine than I think that's sort of where it came from then was Tucker and Todd make a movie. Yeah, I I think. The, the the desire for machine people and a machine civilization that was responsible for things like the internet, which, uh, how would you even describe that in their terms? It's almost like a, a mechanical, like a hive mind thought stream that branches all of these devices together, and a lot of those devices are people. A, a neural net. Yeah, kind of. Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> but that, yeah, for 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 humans, it's just... A, a, a useful tool but i imagine for the people of planet it's almost like a telepathic sort of gestalt thought process it's a yeah gestalt process but it also has sort of inherent in in their nature like life-giving properties yeah and and so that naturally gives rise to the idea of what what made all that and yeah i like the idea of a god computer is is more compelling to me than an actual god god but, but every, everything was designed. But because machine. because we knew that the God computer would not necessarily want everyone to know that it was a computer. How did that come about? Did humans did humans? I can't remember. This is another thing that we've had a discussion about, like humans decided on their own that it was more of a deity. I can't remember. Do they believe I can't remember if we've discussed this. Do they know that do they believe in the god computer or are they praying to a god computer or are they praying to a god? I don't think I don't think they're aware of the god computer. I think that they believe that there is a god, but I yeah, I, think that's what I bet saying. you they would be quite shocked and surprised to learn that the god they believe in is uh not that they aren't made in its image, that it isn't a reflection of them in any way, that it is no. actually entirely alien to them. I don't think they think that it's a machine. They think people make, you know, organic flesh and blood people make machines and that machines serve people. Right. They don't In realize fact, it's kind of the other way around. There's a there's a gigantic important dichotomy between flesh and machine. Yeah. As as for where it started, there's there's an argument to be made that humans are just kind of spiritual and uh superstitious in their own right but also angels have visited earth and might have you know dropped a couple of hints 
Oh, definitely. There's there's relationships between them. So chronologically, the God computer creates planet, some other stuff, and homeworld. And homeworld is is what we call our Earth, the Earth yeah. on on which Tucker and Todd and the rest of the, everything else resides. Yep, it's the main setting of the entire little fiction, and then of course the main city that everything is set in is hometown. Because why not? Hometown, Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> On the planet of Homeworld. Does Homeworld have a home star? Is that I what we like call that. the sun? <laughs> I like that. Home star. <laughs> Somewhere out there, the brothers chaps get like a, a weird buzzing sensation in the back of their heads. The lawyers, at least. <laughs> do you think, do you, I, don't, I don't know. Nah. They seem, they seem like delightful fellows. Very, uh, what's the word? Open source fellows. Considering how many homages and references that they make, I think they would they would find it kind of funny to be themselves referenced and paid homage to. Um, yeah. So on Homeworld, did we what we I, I feel like we have discussed it at length The the first beings, were they angels? How how did that work out? Because we, ha- we had we had ever the beings on Homeworld. Yeah. I'm going to say that it's actually, the I guess angels helping the God computer build the place. You actually you actually have a fair amount of, I think, planet figured out like pre homeworld because because planet is sort of how did you describe it as a test bed for reality? Yeah, ev- like uh, especially in terms of the way the God computer interprets reality is from a technology first standpoint. So all of the methods used in creation are technologically based, and that all gets tested and developed on planet. It's about as close to heaven as something in the material world can get. Not quite there, but, you know, it's right on the, the doorstep. It's sort of the pre-Eden. Yeah, it, that's kind it's of what alpha. it is. It's intended to be kind of Eden. Oh, that's actually kind of funny, because Alpha and Omega are a uh, are, are, a, are a very Christian... Mm-hmm. Uh, thing so it would be kind of funny if planet was considered the alpha and there it, is a reference it, to that it definitely is that's where that's where alpha testing takes place yeah alpha development and testing yeah pity pity homeworld because they're actually not final release they're just beta oh that's funny <laughs> final actually, release I is still like in, that, you know, we're not quite ready for final release yet <laughs> still working on it it's only been a few thousand years give us a bit I actually kind of like inserting that as a thing because the hubris of mankind to think that like. <laughs> oh, yeah, that that they're made in God's is... image, that God is <laughs> yeah. God is like us. We are like God. Earth is the, the pinnacle of all creation. It's the this is the, of the universe. this is the best that it will ever get. <laughs> yeah, we are the supreme creation. This is the best place. That's really funny. <laughs> Turns out, no, you're just beta okay that's canon now okay (laughs) homeworld is beta but but yeah and that's funny because it's really just the bug testing stage yeah and the balancing stage alpha is really more important and that actually kind of maybe explains a little bit why our uh, universe is so chaotic and unstable there's so much shit going on this is the bug testing stage yeah we're it's we're in gary's progress it's still a work in progress the god computer does these things in stages so, uh, prehistory homeworld. I do think that the angels, including Basil Bob, are the first to uh, set foot on the 
newly created planet and they're helping the god computer you know build mountains dig rivers otherwise handle its infrastructure so does that mean that they just to clarify were were the angels generated by planet not directly by the god computer or was the god computer doing like a creation phase or are there developers or whatever? I, I think I think that the God computer used facilities it created on planet to manufacture the angels. OK, I like that. I'm good with that. Either that or use planets manufacturing systems to manufacture angels like in heaven, like just like took the technology back to heaven either way. But planet was definitely integral to their creation. We have a couple of references in, in, uh, in episodes past where we have Plato and the God computer discussing the design of the angels over over like the, the design table. Right. I was going to ask. So if we have we had if we had Plato discussing that with the God computer. So were any of the other philosophers pre angel then? Socrates, I don't know, I, Socrates is, of course, because Socrates yeah. created the God computer. Yeah. Plato is a native of planet and would have been among probably among the first generation of machine people made and the machine people did come before the angels. They're, they're like the alpha alpha because angels are partially synthetic, partially organic. You are so beautiful. Oh, wow. Alpha alpha. Yeah, that took me back. <laughs> I just want to fix his hair. Any, any who I don't know about Aristotle, but probably, I mean, Aristotle is definitely from planet too. Right. And is definitely of the same machine race as Plato. But I Plato and, helped and, design and, the and, angels. And I just want to, I know I'm jumping kind of forward, but maybe I'm not. I'm established in a relationship. Aristotle was Plato's student, right? Yeah. And then, but then started becoming disturbed by his teachings. And we'll get to that. Or yeah, police Plato, system, I guess. Plato goes off the rails. Yeah. But first, the angels. Yes. Yes, we've got angels on Homeworld and with the God computer's help and using information gleaned from, of course, the creation of the angels, because the God computer created purely synthetic organisms, the machine race that Plato belongs to. Mm -hmm. And then Plato, interested in organics, helped the God computer design a partially synthetic, partially organic life form that would become the angels. And then using that knowledge, the angels and the God computer create purely organic life in this test bed homeworld. And so, yeah, so would we say that the, the, the humans then were formed in the image of the angels then? In, in, in an aspect of them. Yeah. Uh, particularly the organic aspect. I'm sure that the angels have like some that we, that we haven't quite shown anybody, but I'm sure they have like some weird mechanical properties in there too. Right. I'm sure they've got cool metal wings, no feathers, Oh, I like those. Yeah. Yeah. The... Metal wings with like jetpacks and shit. <laughs> <laughs> All Icarus style. Yeah. <laughs> Rocket feet. I don't know, but it, they they hide it because Basil Bub has been able to walk among people for a long time. And as we will learn after humans are uh, populated on Homeworld, that they are, in fact, cross fertile. They are compatible Angels and humans eventually decide to get together, and Dawn is born, the very first ever Nephilim, daughter of Basilbub. Yeah. So is because is so is Lilith the first woman? Did we say that is she is she the first human woman? I don't know if we decided that, but she was certainly among the first generation. Right. And and I think that means that 
this first generation were created rather than born. Yeah. So they I think, they're, I think they're that's as close, better. They're as close to the angels as any humans ever were in terms of genetics and just, you know, power level and all that. They're never yeah, the chicken came before the egg. Yeah. So I'm going to say that these this first generation of humans were very long-lived, long-lived. They had uh they didn't quite age. They uh they didn't get sick. This yeah, this was didn't. as good as humanity was ever going to be. Uh, what's that? Mortality was an afterthought. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna assume that that wasn't included in the programming until later. But but uh, at least for this this first phase, everything on Homeworld was going pretty well. We've got high technology straight from Planet brought by the angels. So we've got you know unlimited energy sources. We've got medical advancement beyond our wildest dreams. We've got a super society, angels and humans living together. They've I, the God computers just letting it happen. What's the worst that what's what 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 could possibly go wrong? Yeah, it's idyllic. It's a practically a utopia. And for a while it really is. But of course, humans are a bit ambitious. Well, so and but so this super society and and this kind of like gem of a of a of a city state or whatever, the center of humanity is it becomes eventually a place that's known as the lost city of Atlantis. At the time, is it called Aslant? Actually, should we just do that? Should we say that that means something else in the the language of the of the, the of their peoples? Atlantis <laughs> is an island translation, right? That was created later. So this city well, is not the this. There are, uh, I think, during our planning episode for season five where we really started fleshing out Don's early history mm-hmm. we we discussed that Atlantis was part of this super society and that it might not have been contained to just one city it might have even spanned the entire planet oh, okay I don't remember <laughs> but but we we were focused primarily on one city that happened to be connected to Atlantis not necessarily physically but trade and information and because As- Aslantis was a major power generator. Right. Okay. And and laboratory. It was a research place. That's that's why Aslantis sunk. That was where the calamity started. Right. The humans and dug the, the, too the, greedily the, and too deep. The destabilizing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although we probably should come up with a name for this society. And it would be funny if it was also kind of like a butt pun. A butt. Aslantis <laughs> is a butt pun, so why not? Everything about this place is butt jokes. Well, and we have so many butt jokes. Every, I think many of the many many a season finale have been <laughs> butt jokes. Yeah, it's the end. Why not? <laughs> uh, oh, Colatopia, you know, someone with derriere. Mm. Thin no nims for butt. <laughs> oh man rectopolis you know fundament is a funny word that doesn't seem very butt like haunches rump posterior i'm a fan of posterior yeah i like posterior um oh do we want to do something with the opolis i kind of do i don't bum opolis well, that's that's why I uh, put forward Rectopolis. <laughs> Rectopolis. Wow. <laughs> I'm trying Damn near to killed him. I'm tr- what's at 
I'm trying to think of other. How are other? What are other city affectations? City. I can't do this. My brain isn't. Butt talks. It's <laughs> just funny if the place was just called butt. Because isn't that there's a butte, Montana? <laughs> this place is just butt. Okay, B U T T E <laughs> with like a little accent on it. And if if people pronounce the ac- the accented E, you're like, no, no, it's just it's just it's silent. Although I do like that. I like bum with an umlaut. Welcome to Boom. <laughs> That's also <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Beam. <laughs> <laughs> or Malbum. Mabum. <laughs> Malbum. No, it's Mabum mail- now. Milbum. It's it's Mabum now. <laughs> I, I do like I do like just boom. <laughs> I do like the boom. <laughs> All right. So uh, names for the super society aside. Yeah. At the island of Aslantis, there is a, a very special mountain in the depths of which there is a research lab that's generating all kinds of power and doing lots of experiments with the fairly recently discovered to them anyway outside, which is. A bizarre interdimensional space that connects everything. Yeah, it's it's the outside is the the in between of everything. Yeah, it connects all points in in space and time across every universe ever. So it's the glue that holds the multiverse together. It also happens to be basically the the material fabric of creation itself, and it is unlimited energy, which is exactly where this super society is getting all of its power. But they're they're. The outside is unstable. It's kind of mutagenic. It does weird stuff to you. And they're they're delving too greedily and too deep. And they make a hole a little too big. And thus the cataclysm. Yeah, and be, yeah, because it because it, it is everything and everywhere, it has the potential to be anything and everything. And so it's extremely chaotic and uh, unstable. Yeah, it's it's as likely to be incredibly dangerous as it is to be incredibly helpful. And so space-time starts uh, becoming a little bit unstable in the area around where all of these power generators are. And unfortunately, that happens to be in every city in the super society. So up is down, left is right, yes is no. Everything is starting to flip, turn upside down. And uh, anybody who's smart is going to go move in with their auntie and uncle in Bel Air and get the fuck out of (laughs) there. This place is coming undone. The ground is quaking and Aslantis is sinking into the sea. And so realizing um, the the implications of what's going on here, is he called Bazelbub at the time? Yeah, he's called Bazelbub at the time. Yeah, Jeff Bazelbub. He's al- always has been. I like the idea that there's a super ancient angel and he's just named Jeff. <laughs> yeah, that appeals to our sensibilities. Yep, Jeff. Um, yeah. Yeah, he knows what's going on. He recognizes uh, what's going on. And so actually, did we say that he might have even been tipped off to the possibility that it might be occurring? If he's aware that it might occur, he's probably in the lobby that is trying to push the experiments to, you know, slow down. Right. Like, restraint, guys. Progress is good, but we need it needs to be measured progress. Restraint. Yeah, humans don't do that. Even uh, even prehistory humans were a little bit uh, over the top. And we so want he, it all and we want it now. And so he gathers his family together in the yeah, midst of 
he sees the writing on the wall. He's probably got like a little scanning doodad that's like a Geiger counter. And it just like whines and then breaks. Okay, we got to go, baby. And and one of these, I guess it's been a while since I've considered the exact like <laughs> circumstances of the moment that it happens. But a, a, a large v- vent or whatever portal. A tear, a tear, a, a portal. Tear. Yeah, tears start forming around these basically the power generators because the power generators are supposed to be kind of like stabilized uh, access points into the outside. And and recognizing that the reality therein is coming apart and realizing it will be safer on the inside of one of the the, the inside of the outside. It will be yeah. safer on the outside. Um, he takes I think we said his eight year old daughter. Seven or eight, yeah. Seven or eight, and assuring her that he and his, he and her mother, huh, yeah, will be will be through right after her. Pushes her through, but whatever disintegration or I don't does is Lilith. They're, they're not. They're not point? quite. I don't remember. They're not quite fast enough. They they have they have time Something for uh, little little Don. In fact, it's kind of. Little Dawn baby slightly delays them because she needs to grab Milo and her treasures. Right. If they're leaving home, she needs to get her things. If 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 she hadn't stopped for those few seconds to get their things, mommy and daddy would have been able to get through behind her. But there's only just enough time for her. Yeah. So they managed to get her Milo, her her little wrist teacher's assistant device, which she has. This is the super society. We have holographic teacher's assistants run by A.I., so she's got Milo. She's got her little bag of treasures, which includes that very special cornerstone that we spoke about. And she manages to get tossed through the portal with yeah, mom and dad promising that they're right behind her. Only that's when everything finally totally destabilizes and everything goes dark. The portal collapses and we uh, we get a slow reveal of what occurred. The The city that they were in is totally in ruins. Yeah. So I think we need to move through through this a lot faster than we are. Yeah, we need we need to summarize this a lot more than we're going into detail. Basilbub is alive. Everybody else is not. This is the first reset. Everything is broken. The god computer engages in a a, re- a restore protocol and wipes it clean. We're starting again, but uh, without the super society, humanity is now on its own, starting from point zero. While on the other side, Dawn is now. Um... On her own. On her own. The first Nephilim in a strange, unusual place. Uh, she gets introduced to our first mention of what we call misfit toys. We wanted for a long time to turn uh, the 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 kind of indigenous beings of the outside into something uh, sort of archetypical or whatever. And we like the idea of the island of misfit toys from, what is it? From the, the island of misfit Rudolph. toys. Yeah, it's from Rudolph. The red nosed reindeer. Right. So we want yeah, to incorporate that lots in some of, way. Lots of, lots of stuff in the outside is sort of like the detritus, cultural detritus. And so forced to kind of like figure out her life on her own before she even meets them. Um, or how does that work? How does she's Milo got, come out of the device? Milo, Milo is the device we call that. Yeah, I think it has to be activated. My little omnibus is what we kind of ended up coming up with the acronym for. Yeah, I think um, that's what it was. It's sort of like her her teaching implement, sort of a, an AI that helps her interact with the world and, and helps guide and, and uh, inform her of her surroundings. 
And maybe it's, is it after they meet Jackie that he's extracted? Or yes. is it way after? It's, it's very shortly after. He, oh, right, he breaks down. Okay, he breaks down. And so that's how he becomes a character, is some magic is used to extract his personality from the device. Yeah, his, uh, his AI personality is given a body of its own through magical means. And eventually they are separated for thousands of years. Yeah. And during that time, actually, I think that he realized that she was becoming a person that he couldn't. Yeah, they they both had their own. They both had their own path and they were kind of incompatible. She started leaning into her her chaos as she started to kind of like develop and uh, recognize her abilities as a Nephilim in the outside and started leaning into sort of a, a trickster goddess role. Yeah, the outside probably had something to do with that, but with all of its chaos. Uh, while on the other side, he was he leaned into being more of a, a, a librarian and a scholar. And so did we say that he founded? He started discovering antiquities and old uh, like archives in the outside and wanted to start compiling them, I believe, right? Yeah, kind of kind of preserved nuggets of ancient culture and stuff. And he decided to started cataloging, categorizing, and then it eventually became a much bigger sort of overriding objective of, of cataloging, recording history and preserving it. Yeah, because so, yeah, in, in the beginning, when we first sort of proposed the outside as a an upside down sort of place, uh, we wanted it to be one of the very first things we said about it is like it's what's on the other side of the, the Bermuda Triangle, like it's where things go when they disappear. Uh, yeah. Maybe it's where maybe it's where socks go when they disappear from the dryer. Even uh, yeah, there's definitely a, a pretty massive there's pile of socks mounds of somewhere. socks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we've ever said that, but I like that. Lost text messages. They mm-hmm. they some guy in the outside keeps getting them. It's <laughs> so, so frustrating. What <laughs> yeah. fuck is this? Dropped calls. Why don't they leave me alone? When you forget where you put your car keys, that memory goes to the outside. That's great. Um, uh, and cultures, so, so th- cultures that have disappeared, gods that have been forgotten, everything that, you know, it's there's there's like it's echoes. And so th- those are the echoes and remnants that he discovers and starts collecting there from from everywhere. Yeah, that's where it starts. And I think we decided that the very first thing he found was actually like a really, really, really cattle big catalog of like wiki feed pages. <laughs> yeah, I think that was, that's right. <laughs> was like, oh. in, in filing cabinets. Some some parts of history are better left forgotten. Delete. Burn. I think I think that was Socrates's foot collection. A man's entitled to his hobbies. And so from that point in history, thousands of years ago, when they kind of split off, he de- he develops. What are what what was that original? Was that the original chronological order? Uh, I I think I think that I don't think it even had a name, but I do think that the chronological and alphabetical orders developed as offshoots of his group okay and uh, they did not survive yeah because way far in the future when we are calling it the keep of the code that is the keep of the alphanumeric code which is which is yeah the the eventually what he is later thousands of years in the future in charge of okay yeah and so from that point, we bounce forward. the 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 first point in history is the this pre industry, pre post civilization fill in. Before what is this? This really makes a nice post civilization. Oh right, right, right. Bounce. Okay, yeah. Yeah, 
in the wake of the very first ever restore after the cataclysm, Basil Bub is still alive, but he goes into sort of a self-imposed exile because, you know, family gone, grief. Right. Did we describe a moment in which he watches everything literally replaced in front of his eyes? Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's like a there's like a, a energy field that like passes by from left to right in front of his eyes. On one side, it's like ashen waste. And then and then it's like pristine green grass and trees and like untouched wilderness animals, birds. There's a deer kind of thing. It gets filled in with a brand new earth, basically. Right. Humans are being restored, too, but they're they're cave people now. Gone is their their ancient knowledge and access to planet technology. Ah, people 2.0 or people safe mode or whatever we said. Yeah, pretty much. And so humans are now cave dwelling savages with no knowledge or culture yet. They're brand new, fresh off the 3D printer. And this, this <laughs> is just actually... imagine. <laughs> I just imagine Basil Bub like trying to talk to one of them, like "Who are you?" And the guy's just like, "I don't know." <laughs> like he's he's just he's the new guy. Yeah. Uh, but no, no language, even not even a gursk. Nothing, just uh, unga bunga noises. And uh... oh, is that where we finally get to do our unga bunga bit? <laughs> yeah. Why not? Oh, turns out it was Basil Bub who introduced the forbidden sounds. <laughs> That's so funny. The devil would. <laughs> That's his first evil act as a devil. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Corrupting humanity from the very first moment. He introduced the bad noise, the forbidden sound. But he's called back to heaven. There's work to do. Yeah, he, he gets to grieve for a little while. And he, he does establish something of a little enclave somewhere in Earth in home world where he, you know, hangs out during rare moments of free time from heaven. But yeah, otherwise he goes back to heaven because there's nothing really left for him here. Oh, is that place going to be where the first elevator is? Do yeah, I, I think I think he finds a tunnel that still contains some of the ruined city, one that he's familiar with. Right. Yeah, that yeah, would be that would, that would eventually become the forbidden section in hell. Yeah, I assume he comes back there to hang out sometimes because he's a sentimental fella. But yes, he goes back to heaven. Angels are probably all recalled. I, I'm pretty sure after what already just happened, angels are no longer allowed to interfere with humans. So now it's just humans versus plants. We're, oh, that, that's when that's we get the, the new rule being hammered into the wall by heavenly decree. Yeah, no angels on Earth. Homeworld off limits. Everybody, the, all the angels are muttering and gossiping. Oh, man. No more sex tourism. <laughs> Basically, Steve owed me 12 bucks. <laughs> you know, forget your debts. Forget your girlfriends. Forget your boyfriends. Angelic sex tourism. That's wild. <laughs> Worth so exploring in, in, as a the, in the power vacuum left by humans, another force rises up. It turns out that the plants... Uh, somehow gain self-awareness and intelligence and they they create their own little plant civilization and enslave humanity for a little while. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't last. This is uh, it, it doesn't last. But this is the the heyday for plants before vegetarian is invented. Right. Before the dinosaurs had their chance, the plants did. Yeah. Oh, I like this. That means dinosaurs and humans hang hang out together. Yeah. Yeah. Bef before this. I have no idea what humans ate, but it was probably like nutrient bars. 
<laughs> uh, it's during the heyday of the plants that uh, vegetarianism is invented. So the humans start eating the plants and that's exactly how they wind up conquering them. Yeah. During the heyday of the dinosaurs, uh, carnivorous, you know, carnivorism, I guess, for humans is invented. So they eat the dinosaurs. Because to me, that's that's how humanity dominates the planet is like they just control what they eat. Humans are opportunivores. And that's exactly how they wind up taking control of the planet again, is they just start eating everything that they can't fuck. <laughs> but yes, we've got, a, we've got a pre-industry plant civilization and uh, some, some eerie parallels to slavery there. Yeah, and we will return to it in a different context. Yeah, I, I kind of want to have uh, like a, a sort of like a corporate environment for the plants. Well, because in the future, we also have an environment. We, we come back to the plants in the reset. And instead of them having become sentient on their own, they were being animated by eldritch beings. Oh, yeah. They were being influenced. And yeah. it still, it's still entirely possible that that is how these plants got their spark of intelligence. True. Some, some eldritch, eldritch beings took advantage of the relative, you know, total power vacuum, the absolute lack of any dominant life form on the planet. Humanity has been laid low, and and certain certain agents out there like it that way. Start playing sandbox. Exactly. But then there's a huge time gap, which I guess it will be filled eventually. I mean, yeah, it's free real estate. Yeah, but for the most part, it corresponds to ancient human history as far as it is recorded. Uh, plants go away, dinosaurs die, and humanity starts learning how to farm plants and ranch animals and then they uh they invent the wheel master fire that's so crazy that's so crazy that we've we have actually not created any history in between that time there's so much room that's where our uh, our medieval cowboys can go hell yeah <laughs> we went straight from the medieval age to the wild west and the the, <laughs> the uh nightly cowboys exist right in that transition threshold yeah Gunpowder developed way faster than anybody thought. <laughs> they, tried, and, yeah, uh, they tried catapults for a day. They're like, nah, fuck this. Yeah, nope. How about this? Cannons. <laughs> and then they're like, how about one I yeah, can hold in my like, hand? Yeah. <laughs> and they developed, They yeah, they skipped right over flintlocks and matchlocks and stuff. We went straight into like cartridge firearms with rotating cylinders. You can thank the dwarves. Grape shot. Tally ho, lads. That's that's very funny. And then and then, of course, somewhere at the end of that time gap, we've got our infant Tucker and Todd meeting in our second origin story. Funny enough, they meet due to in sort some sort of intervention by their present selves. Is that something they meet? Yeah. In our world, time is not a fixed construct. People go back in time and hang out with themselves. All paradoxes are reconciled in the outside. I, I guess they're, I mean, they're infants. They're not exactly aware of each other. They're in the same room together. They don't meet. These two infants don't interact with each other. Yeah, if you, if you actually, the, the, the episode in which we discussed this was not that long ago. So if you want to hear all about how Tucker and Todd started off in some sort of experimental birth tube, <laughs> <laughs> you can check that out on uh, coffee.com slash snideful. Magnificent. Yeah. Um, another time gap makes up all of their childhood and teenagehood until they become 
Adults who have a sitcom. <laughs> there, there is there is some space we have filled in in there because they both wind up on the loose after getting out as as uh, very young children. We'll say a slash, little older than slash toddlers. feral animals. Yeah, they uh, Tucker in particular uh, was living with a pack of possums at the time, so he was entirely a feral child. But he lived such a life with them that at one point he did become world's best possum. Yeah, he has an award and everything. And he never misses an opportunity to show it or talk about it. Best possum. Several years running now. But they both get caught, Tucker and Todd, out on the streets. They get caught and wrangled and thrown in the pound, which is where they they uh, meet each other properly. Todd teaches Tucker how to speak. And then they get adopted by a mysterious mom figure. And then they immediately go to school and are incredibly disruptive throughout their entire childhood. As they're always coming up with funny stories. That's their through line. Yep. Coming up with stories. Yep. Then that's the only thing they continue to consistently do throughout. And that's what I'd really like to think about is exactly how they got their hands on a sitcom. How'd they get into that? Well, because that, that's it really truly isn't. I don't know if we've said kind of like what age they are when that happens. Are they like that's in my mind? Adults. Like, they're, does anybody ever encourage them to pursue uh, telling stories? Like, or, or much like ourselves, is <laughs> nobody supportive? And so we had to figure it out in our like middle adulthood. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the latter. Mom is a very hands off kind of character. She intervenes if things go, go bad, but otherwise lets the boys do as they do. Yeah. Kind of no, no retribution, no, no reward. Well, yeah, because mom is very, she wants us to discover our own paths. She has no interest in uh, influencing it. Yeah, what one might say that there's too little guidance and support there. So the boys flounder for many years. Weird. Weird that that would happen. But at a certain point, I mean, because they magoo everything, maybe they stumble, we've, they, maybe they oh, stumble into that sitcom. They accidentally walk into a rehearsal. Yeah, this isn't where I put my donuts. <laughs> Just yeah. I mean, that's that's the best way I can think of to magoo your way into that is just I didn't. It's suddenly a job interview. Yeah, they wander into somebody else's writer's room and just start telling the story on top of what the other people were saying. And all the other applicants just turned out to be even worse. Yeah, fine. Just call up those two guys and then they wind up in their own sitcom. But it does not last. Oh, I mean, is it is it a one to is it's a uh, twofer, and the thing the the way that they magoo themselves into the interview or the scenario, or whatever, also impacts the people that were about to go into that interview. Like they they the thing that accidentally gets them into that room also like accidentally sends those people off into some sort of peril yeah, it's, or whatever. It's the uh, the Grinch thing again. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, who just got sent to Grinchville? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah i like that somebody has just been tragically inconvenienced or or they get actually bumped into like a much better opportunity oh sure yeah that's like funny at, that's at, at first, because the president of the studio <laughs> yeah at first it seems like they've been tragically deprived of an opportunity but no actually tucker and todd have accidentally bumped them into like something better that works because i mean it we don't need to have everybody who comes into contact with them suffer. Some people are allowed to profit. I mean, is is that is that the premise? They see an ad for like interview for the president of the studio. They're like, we could do that. So they they go to they want to go be the CEO or whatever, and then they accident they 
switcheroony switch door with the guy that was going to. I something tells me that Tucker and Todd do not pursue uh, posted listings <laughs> unless that thing involves, you know, like a stroke for one sale on waffles or something. Yeah. So I, I do like the idea that they were there for something totally unrelated and they're surprised and dismayed to find that it's not there, even as they're getting like an acting role. They but were they there do, for the free buffet craft services. Yeah, yeah they do. They exactly. But they do push someone else out of the way who themselves are briefly also dismayed. But suddenly they have a better opportunity. Are they, are they there for some like breakfast themed prices, right? Show <laughs> in the crowd to be pulled up wearing like waffle costumes or whatever. Oh, nice. You had me at breakfast. Yeah. Any one of those. Anyways, they end up with the sitcom. They end up with a sitcom. It, it ends up becoming an unaired pilot, but I think it lights a fire under their asses. Suddenly they're like, show business is our business. Yeah, they feel like it's a calling, even though they're rejected by 17 people in a row. Like it goes in one ear and out the other. They they feel like they've they've yeah, they're answering they've, the call now. They have found their niche. Yeah, this is what we're meant to do. And many people are still we're trying to tell you no, guys. <laughs> but they don't listen. And, in, and instead, since everybody else says no, they decide that they will say yes and just make their own thing. So, so they. they yeah, they start a podcast with with which is supposed to be like the vehicle for their their writing projects. Now, do they do they just instantly have their studio in the beginning? Is it just, think, they just magically have it or I think it because um, on the I, one hand, they do magically just have stuff sometimes. Yeah, uh, especially on account of mom occasionally supporting from the the uh, the outside, you know, not the outside outside, but in subtle ways that they don't know. Like the, like the freaking insurance policy she got them. Yeah. So that when they burn down their own place, they still get a payout. Art pays out double in case of arson. How is that possible? The manipulation of eldritch beings. That's how. So it is entirely possible. But I do like the idea that they start more humble than that. They, they're working out of like a cardboard box under a bridge with a little yeah. table and a microphone in it. Just the uh, patio furniture. Yeah. A little fold-out chair. Yeah. So they, they, they get a podcast where they write sketches. They're going to be comedy sketch writers. I have, a, I have a mental image of them having running water in their little cardboard box, but that's exactly what ruins the box. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Hey, you got the you got indoor plumbing. Yeah, I'm going to... I'm just going to go have a shower. I'll be right back. And then, the yeah... The box melts away and there's somebody still having a shower now totally exposed. Oh, man. Pixelated. Yeah, got to cover up with the uh, shower curtain. Ah, OK. Dun, 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 we, dun, dun. we now ha we have we now have 50 minutes to fire through all of the points of everything that came after all of the past. We start right. a podcast. We introduce a character called Miranda. And this She's... might be the first instance of Tucker and Todd actually writing somebody into existence. I think it definitely is. They write she... a sketch about a crappy diner that happens to have a cow in disguise as a waitress. And she gets tipped as a waitress should be. And a cow a should... should be. And, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm going to assume everybody now gets the joke. Yeah, that's she the gets joke. tipped over. Her disguise is ruined, and now everybody realizes that they just got served by a cow. Also, uh, Miranda gets really upset when Tucker orders the steak. Um, yeah, no beef. No beef. 
Um, uh, almost immediately, yeah, almost immediately afterwards, they abduct uh, an artificial intelligence that happened to be running Craigslist. And what was the conceit of? Yeah, they were trying to find breakfast, and in order to find breakfast, they searched for it on Craigslist. And then yeah. when they needed, when they asked for help from Craigslist, it pulled them in, and so they discovered the Craig. <laughs> and and decided for some reason that they needed to take him with them. Oh, oh, because he became his other self. <laughs> yeah, in in we 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 better explain that in the uh, the remastered version. Yeah, where the the boys acquiring the breakfast that they were searching for was actually it actually became contingent on taking Craig with them. Gigi wanted out of Craig's list. So this this I want to give context for because the origin of Craig and Gigi is that we use to record this program um, a software suite called Discord. And in order to record our voices on Discord, we use a recording bot called Craig and Craig's backup um, in order to record two versions of the same thing is called GARC because it's Craig spelled backward. And we didn't like saying GARC. So we said that Craig has an alternate personality named Gigi who can take over him when he is, uh, what's the word? Non-compliant. <laughs> I like that word. Yeah. And so Craig and Gigi came to be. They record this podcast. They became... Yeah. They became our interns for a little bit and our engineer on the podcast and would in the beginning would would be kind of like the editor, um, omnipotent voice or omniscient voice who would critique the the mistakes that we made in the show. Uh, And they just kind of came to be sidekicks. Sidekicks slash frenemies slash will they won't they romance thing. (laughs) But they came from inside Craigslist. Yeah, they were. They were in Craigslist, and and the truth is, they technically come from Planet, but they got a gig at in Craigslist. But Gigi machines wanted got, out. Machines got to work. Yeah, Gigi wanted out, so Craig was abducted. He wanted to stay. We installed him into, a, or we downloaded him into a little USB drive, and over the course of many episodes, he's been different things that the USB drive was plugged into. At one point, he was a, li- a butt plug USB drive <laughs> who was inserted into Stan because yeah. we're ed- we're edgy kids. <laughs> because I think we have a bit of a fixation. With we butt. have a posterior fixation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we should probably talk to somebody about how often butts are involved in stuff. I don't know. Butts are funny. Dicks are overplayed. Butts yeah. are on the menu. looks like butts back on the menu boys the birth of the WAP (laughs) oh yeah the birth of the WAP so uh, Cardi B was trending at the time you sent me a meme about uh, oh yeah a guy guy swimming I forget a a North Korean man uh, trying to swim away from North Korea and being returned by the ocean or something like that I think he swam back to North Korea to get away from Cardi B's song. Right. It was like two. Yeah, it was two two articles that kind of like two news articles that went together. Um, and so that gave us the idea for a, a a Asian sea monster, Daikaiju beast, water elemental known yeah. as the, the wet ass Pacific. Yep. 
<laughs> it's a it's a very fascinating leap. <laughs> yeah. Makes but, me happy though. Oh yeah, I think it might be oh, one wow. of our finer creative choices. <laughs> and um, so now we've got a super sea monster. A super sea monster who we didn't really do anything with for a little while. It just sort of existed as an idea. Yeah, it was just a joke. We didn't know where to take it. Yeah. It it wasn't until actually much more recently we'll we'll come to it. The the WAP actually became something important. Should we just say it? The, nah, we'll get to it. We'll get um, to it. Yeah. After the birth of the WAP was the first time that we started talking about Columbo. I mean, I feel like we were talking about Columbo being in our sketches sort of from the beginning. We he were. Was- he was actually in our very, very, very first never ever aired test episode as as a deliberately bad detective. Oh yeah, he was he, he was just like cock blocking cases. Yeah, he was fudging an investigation on behalf of criminals. <laughs> he was much more corrupt than the uh the one that showed up on the show eventually wound up being. But yeah, <laughs> we've we've had a, we've had a fascination with Columbo since very early on. We like Peter Falk. We like Peter Falk and I'm I'm sort of just fascinated with I guess the archetype, the archetype or the, the trope of like, I'm fascinated by characters that my generation knows the name of and laughs at simply by saying the name, even though we don't necessarily know what we're referring to. And I feel like Columbo is one of those things. You can just say like Columbo and like people, people don't even know what it is, but they're like, yeah, that guy, that's a thing. That's a reference. Yeah. They know Columbo is a person they've heard. I, I understood that name. Yeah. My dad watched that. Exactly. So that was he first appears uh, sometime around in this this area. Um, we also have the it's just is it worth mentioning the bunny suit? The but did we end up the bunny suit kind of keeps coming back in one way or another. So it's in in, in this first season around this time that we we did mention the bunny suit being sort of a, a Deus Ex Machina device. It's it's there to serve as a vehicle for plot contrivances. Yeah, so that plot contrivances don't come out of nowhere. They come out of a preconceived notion. <laughs> yeah, they come out of the pockets of this bunny suit, which itself came out of nowhere almost. But we, we eventually decided that it was, in fact, heroically forged by, yeah, by our version of the dwarves, who are not dwarves. Where Was it forged in a place that was that has anything to do with like Atlantis or anything like that? Nah, I think nah. I think uh, it was it was forged in some kind of mountain hold. Okay, I mean that could the the lot the labs in Atlantis were technically in a mountain hold. Maybe it was made for them by the dwarves. I don't know. Our 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 snidlings, as we sometimes call them, are very much related to the outside. True. Um, I have here talking about like the wedding shooter is a funny joke that shows up. We've managed that's in our first season. Um. It's a holdover from the, the 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 first season into the the reset first season. Yeah, it got, it got remastered properly. Tucker and Todd once again write a sketch that becomes kind of too real. We then also oh so the the idea of the straight woman. So J slash J slash straight detective slash straight woman. She started off as it started off as a joke where I wanted to I wanted to have. In my mind, Tucker and Todd were both um, the funny the man. Yeah, yeah they're the both the goof. We needed a straight man. They were both silly boys, and we needed a straight we man. Have a woman. 
Um, yeah, and I wanted to ha- I wanted to have a straight man, but I also wanted to have a woman, and also try to pass the Bechdel test and and have a woman who wasn't just a love interest or talk about being a woman. Uh, and I also thought it was a funny joke to call her a straight woman and have her not be heterosexual. Yeah, which is why she eventually has a gets eyes for Miranda. <laughs> Miranda, yes, good thing we brought up Miranda earlier. The <laughs> our straight woman does develop a crush on a cat. But not until she's a detective, I think. And it, is it only when she's a detective? Yeah, and that was that was a that wound up being a big development for the character is that she actually has many hats. Literally, she she has she adopts different personas based on her hat. So straight woman became straight detective when she put on her detective hat, and she actually went full noir and has her own storylines that nobody else really gets to participate in except uh, yeah. her her characters. When she puts on a hat, she enters, yeah, that hat's version of reality and gets to go on her own side quest within that reality. And it's as as straight detective that she she develops a grungy noir fascination with Miranda and a drinking problem. Dames and whiskey, (laughs) the Yankee Yankee lunatic trading card game. That's a that's an occasional fond pastime of uh, Tucker and Todd. They're not very good at it. And I forget if we ever ended up deciding is is Yankee Lunatic its own card game or was it an expansion of a foundational tabletop game? I can't remember. I like I like the idea that it is a sort of like a, an expansion or a or a named box set of yeah. a of a larger card game, a competitive card game. But it it's probably like a self contained one where you you play you play everything Yankee Lunatic in the rule set of this bigger game, right? So you can't ne- necessarily try to fight somebody's, I don't know, blue-eyed white dragon <laughs> with uh, a Friday night reservation at Dorcia for Sea Urchin Ceviche. That is just OP. <laughs> Todd really hated that. <laughs> Which uh, the Yankee, Yankee lunatic actually does pose a, a nice segue about how D&D influences reality when we play that. Because that was how we created the bunny suit. The bunny. Oh yeah, the, so, yeah. So we came up with the bunny suit in our in our first our quote unquote first season of the podcast. But it wasn't until we figured out what it was actually going to be until uh, in the second season. But at the end of our first season, we we said, hey, since we've 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 successfully completed our first like I think we might have done thirteen or I can't remember the beginning there. We did a we did a row of of episodes, and we said, wouldn't it be cool to finish it off with uh, see if we could write out a whole rather than a short little bit or a collection of bits. Let's let's write a whole movie plot. And so we came up with this idea of I was I was I liked I liked Wreck It Ralph, um, and Ralph breaks the internet, and I thought it would be cool. This is where, as we were saying earlier, I thought it would be cool if there was a planet from which the internet came from that we needed to fly through space to get to to repair the internet or save it or whatever the the case may be. And so, right at the end of our first season is when we came up with Planet. Um, because we needed a source for the internet, and we needed it to be a place we could travel to. And uh, it was decided that a, it would not be a representation. Yeah, it would have to become an epic to save the internet. We must go to its source. And so that was that was the first season of the Tucker and Todd show, or Tucker and Todd cast, or whatever we called it at the time. I can't even remember. I think Tucker yeah. and Todd cast. That was our that was our roughest of rough drafts. Yeah. 
And so we headed into our second season and we said, wouldn't it be cool if it wasn't just writing sketches? Because some of the sketches that we've written, we've turned into characters that we've interacted with. We didn't even mention them in this hist- in this uh, little summary that we were doing. We had the Sendables, who were a group of uh, male-themed assassins. And we also had like the, the non-child assassins, who were based on that horror movie, The Orphan, where they oh, were yeah. older yeah. people a who couple, looked like babies. There are babies. a couple of these horror movies where... <laughs> Very dangerous adults are posing as children and getting adopted and then fucking murdering families and scary, very scary. They would make excellent assassins. So those were sketches that we wrote, but then those people turned into people who were like, I think because of the movie, because of the movie, we were saying those were people that we interacted with. They came after us fighting us at certain points. Yeah, they, they, they became too interesting to pick up, put down and then never pick up again. Yeah, so we said, what if Tucker and Todd were writers who started bringing things into the real world? And if they had influence on the real world, if they were playing something, some crazy tabletop game like Dungeons and Dragons, and they started mentioning, like, because we talked about the the WAP, if the WAP, WAP, whatever we're calling it, the wet-ass Pacific, if they had dreamed up something like the wet-ass Pacific, what other crazy nightmarish creatures could they come up with if they were playing a, a fantasy horror game? And so and we it created... turned out to be a pink bunny suit. <laughs> so that, that's what it came up with, yeah. I, I need one moment, please excuse me. Okay. All right, here I am. So Tucker and Todd, in their infinite and inexplicable weirdness, have dreamed a pink bunny suit into creation. What were you saying? Ah, pardon. So Tucker and Todd, in their infinite and inexplicable weirdness, have dreamed the pink bunny suit into creation, among other things. Yeah, I believe back in the day we because there was two things. There was a facility. It was like an SPC. What's it called? SPC Foundation? SCP? Yeah, it was it was uh, an X-Files slash the fringe cabin in the woods slash cabin in the woods. It was uh, a containment facility facility run by some kind of shadowy government agency. Yeah, Yeah. I guess we didn't really revisit that. We did a little bit. Did we? In in the uh, aftermath, Tucker and Todd wound up going there and once again cracking it open and freeing everybody. Did, that was did we, that was how we got Koopist. Did we specify like who was running it, or was it a, a B agency thing? Uh, the very first time we dealt with it, we uh, it was a generic men in black kind of organization. We didn't name them. It was just. Shadow, oh, was it government? Is it taint? In the after the remaster, it is definitely a taint facility. Okay, I don't know if we ever put that name on it, but we have to now. So it's a taint facility. Yep. So there's a bunch of spooky monsters there, and us playing Dungeons and Dragons or whatever. If we were playing, I can't remember if it was uh, despots and dictators or whatever. I believe. No, it, I believe. I believe it was something approaching that. One of those. Because I distinctly remember being little Boris while, oh, Todd, yeah. while Todd was being Natasha. Right, I, I remember that now too, yeah. Yeah. Making and, our way through the, the the corridors. And yes, as as we were dungeon crawling on the table, somehow our character avatars had materialized in this actual facility and were mimicking our movements. If we opened a door in the game, it would open in this facility. And so without... 
necessarily trying to. We wound up letting everything out of its cages. And do you do you recall in the beginning how things got obliterated and then turned into Paperboy? I remember there being like a, a bunch of things because, oh, it was because all of the puppets, I was making things out of paper. I was making little <laughs> puppets out of paper. And I think we were going to have a scene where a bunch of the mutants tear each other apart, maybe? Yeah, so, something. Either they all tore each other apart or some were torn apart and some were uh, terminated by government forces. Right. Whatever the case was, there was going to be a great big charnel pile of all of these destroyed things. And accidentally, in the middle of that pile somewhere, was was poor Koopist, who would uh, eventually just kind of absorb all of that monster meat. Right. So Koopist did not exist in the, in the original second season pass. He didn't come around until we did a reset. And I think Paperboy just coalesced out of the paper scraps uh, and turned into our, our villain for that season two. Right. That he was just called Paperboy. It wasn't until the, the after the, the sort of dusting off that idea and making it better that he became Koopist as yeah. Paperboy. So in that first season two, Paperboy is just he he declares uh, vengeance against Tucker and Todd because it was their uh, irresponsibility, their their neglect uh, for their their powers that led to his creation and sort of his creation and existence is torment for him. And yeah, so he, hold, he, he holds them responsible for his having been born. So he starts a season arc of coming after them. Um also in that season, notable mentions is the mind people who get related to the your people, and I believe they exist into the 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 reset. We still have them. I think we refined them. <laughs> oh yeah, they they are in a they are in a remastered script for sure. Um, also the introduction to anti imperialism. That was uh, a big one. That was a big one. That was our response to America pulling out of Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah, and the the. Just the terrible shit show that was. So anti-imperialism is like a Walt Disney kind of character, and she has a whole uh, theme park Adventureland called Anti-Imperialism's Fun Farm, where everybody gets led to believe that... Uh, uh, I can't even remember the premise exactly. That everything's I, safe yeah, and okay, I, I but it's it, all I think falling it was, apart. I think, it was, uh, I think it was basically a slaughterhouse masquerading as a petting zoo. Yeah, yeah, Look, exactly. We're yeah, saving that's what them! Right, yeah, right. And you get to pet them. This is a, a sanctuary. It's a, it's a novelty, and then as soon as everybody goes home, the animals get slaughtered. Yeah. Um. After that, this also... So this is actually where Basilbub came from, even though in the chronological canon of uh, Snideverse, uh, he existed long ago. It wasn't until the second season that we started suggesting the idea that Jeff Bazelbub was the the devil, the literal devil, as you called him. Are you <laughs> suggesting that Jeff Bezos is the literal devil? <laughs> uh, I, I said, wasn't. Yes, I, I am. <laughs> I hadn't. I hadn't thought of it till just now. <laughs> what an excellent idea! <laughs> and then that's what happened. <laughs> Jeff Bazelbub. And it just so conveniently that Jeff Bezos could sound like I don't know how to say that word. Basil Basil Bull Beelzebub. 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 Um, so that worked out nicely. And also one of the words for hell happens to be Abaddon, and that sounds like Amazon. So that worked out very nicely for us. Oh yeah, Jeff that that's one of our longest <laughs> standing 
most treasured sort of things, just little doodads that we've made. Jeff Badelbub is the CEO of Abaddon. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody thinks that this is at all suspicious. <laughs> no, nobody's clued in. Um, and part of the premise of him was that because uh, the devil had fallen from uh, heaven and fallen to earth, we were saying, what if what if uh, heaven uh, was like another dimension uh, and had some sort of he had literally fallen to it. And he was the reason that Jeff Bezos was so obsessed with building a rocket to space was because he was trying to get back to heaven. Um, and so in our world, in our in our universe, he's building a space elevator. Uh, to try to get as high up into the air as he can to try to find heaven again. Yeah, he does. He does have a space station, which was necessary once the elevator got high enough. Yeah, because it it needs support structures up there. But it's it's supposed to eventually break through the barrier and reach heaven. Basil Bub wants to go home. And so we said, if we're going to be in space, then we definitely need space pirates. Oh, yeah. And if there's going to be space pirates, then they may as well be doing space slavery. And the space slavery may as well be working for Abaddon. But Abaddon may as well have some sort of contract going with a space pirate. So who better than Annabelle Blackbush, the Dread Pirate, to be in charge of it? (laughs) Yeah, because we wanted Blackbeard, but decided it should be once again. Like we just like we decided. Yeah, just like the straight man (laughs) had to be a straight woman. We decided that our pirate. Our dread pirate captain also ought to be a woman, but we wanted to preserve the the pirate name, the Blackbeard thing. So yeah. we just went with Blackbush. But we're don't, don't call her that to her face. <laughs> Holy shit. No, of course not. She With will disrespect. She, she will kick your dick off like it's the head of a dandelion. What do you call her to her face? Ma'am? Ma'am. Captain. Mademoiselle. She is French, right? She is egregiously French. She's like a Monty Python French. <laughs> you know, you can tell from my outrageous accent, uh, silly king. She, she, uh, she's a bit of a smoker. She's got a robot arm, a robot eye. She's probably got a robot parrot or a monkey. Monkeys are cool pirate things, too. But she's got a contract with the devil. She's on the payroll. And so are her pirates. They handle human resources also known as prisoners with jobs or slaves, which, by the way, Tucker and Todd eventually become for a little while. They do only very briefly. Well, yeah, Um, even even as slaves, they're not valuable. They cause a lot of havoc and eventually they're kind of fired. This also in the season introduced Alrond Hubbard because I don't even know what, which came first was just the name. Yeah, because Phantasology came afterward. I said, what, wouldn't it be funny? Elrond sounds so close to Elrond. Wouldn't it be funny if Elrond Hubbard was a fantasy cultist? And then we just said, why not just call it fantasology? Because Scientology is just as stupid of a name. Yeah. So we're aping, we're aping Scientology <laughs> with that. And we've decided that he is, in fact, just like an elf. Elrond Hubbard. This is his, this is his religion, but it's also a, a business. They can't decide. Why should we? And and somehow, because of all of the dark magic involved, Paperboy and Elrond become entwined in some way, because the Matthew Morconahy of mind was also becoming a thing at this time. Like, he came up earlier in the season, but I can't remember exactly where. 
But all three of them start kind of like sort of matriculating into the same villainousness. He was with uh, the your people or the mind people. Who was McConaughey? That was that was where we brought him up earlier. I, I don't remember. even remember. <laughs> you remember? I have no idea. I just yeah. remember watching him. Was he with them? How did that happen? Who knows? It was uh, it was just supposed to be a cult. And we decided that he just gave off kind oh, of cult leader right. vibes because that it was is... all right, all right, all right. We needed a culty guy. And that's where we came up with, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, and so at the end of that season, we kind of concluded with, he said, this was our first time to do, we wanted to do a Halloween special. And so that Halloween, I, don't, I think in the future, Halloween specials were non-canonical, but this one was canonical because it included Paperboy. It also included um, Tim Curry dressed as Pennywise the Clown, acting as a bouncer and throwing Hitler out of a party. Oh, yeah, that was one of our favorite parts. And it also it, it included uh, Basil Fawlty, who also was in one of our very, very, very rough, very, very early, never aired uh, yeah. episodes. The, the premise of that Halloween special was that it was Clue because we used the clue board as part of the sketch. And yep. so we took all of the named, the colorful named characters within clue and turned them all into visual puns. Um, so like Mrs. White was literally Skylar White and Mr. Green, I think was Walter White. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's how that ended up playing <laughs> up. Um, and I can't even remember all of the different but there was all the, all the different colors, peacocks and, and browns and mustards. And yep. that, oh, that's how we came up with the, the KFC, the mayor, um, which I can't even remember. J- 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 what, what's he, was, he was Colonel Mustard in there. Yeah, Colonel Mustard. And he had the ridiculous voice who became Francis, who we'll get to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, that, uh, we, we've got lots of stuff. That special was our attempt to bring um, uh, all those old unincluded bits into one bit that would stay in the in the future. Uh, Paperboy left a clue for us at the end of that, and we followed that clue through the Ghastly Gazette trilogy because the clue oh, yeah. was a, a newspaper. Funny enough, in that in that uh, in that special, we were actually really, really, really old fashioned trying to sell CDs of our podcast at a little stand in this house, which was. It was it was every everybody had a little stand where they were selling stuff. Yeah, it was, it was a room. podcaster's farmer's market. Yeah, <laughs> which to me is such a funny idea because it's podcasting is kind of digital, of course, and then trying to sell it in an analog format. Too funny. It was awesome. And and Paperboy came by and he was the only person who bought anything from us, but he bought all of it. But ultimately, at the end of the Ghastly Gazette trilogy, we destroyed, I believe, the Makana Hive Mind and Paperboy. Yeah, I think the Makana Hive Mind tapped into us and immediately became incredibly lazy and uh, incoherent. Yeah, it no longer worked as a hive mind. Yeah, it, it, it lost all cohesion. Very frustrating. And I, it says here jam. So I guess there was a giant explosion because jam represents things being obliterated. And turning into goop. Oh yeah! During the during the original uh, Ghastly Gazette, we actually wound up in a we were in a facility, and we wound up in the outside version of that facility. 
And to simulate the outsidery, we decided that all of the surfaces would just have like jam on them and stuff. Everything was just kind of goopy and, and weird. Yeah. Version. So that was the end of season two of the podcast. Season three, we said we wanted to be sort of educational, sort of like a magic school bus kind of thing. So that is where the idea of Plato came from, is he was going to be a time traveling cyborg character. Yeah, we needed a Miss Frizzle. Yeah. Somebody who, who had been places and knew better than us had some uh, credibility. And also we're a couple of philosophy kids. So we wanted to do shadow people and we still haven't. <laughs> We've come, we've sort of seen shadows of shadows, but yeah, we've we, we've, we, we've we've played with the idea of Plato's cave. I think we, we wanted to do Plato's man cave. Oh, that would be interesting. Maybe um, that also in that first episode of introducing Plato, he takes us back in time to teach us about different like philosophical ideologies and such. And that is where we meet a character called Cody, a little goopy guy who follows us home. Oh, we, right. no, we, we actually on bringing him we home. Met, we met Cody in the far future. We oh, went, yeah, yeah. We, he doesn't take us back in time. He takes us way in the future, right? That's where that is to teach we us. Will, about. We will go back in time, but we are doing the uh, we're doing the, the ghost of Christmas future, ghost of Christmas past thing. But Plato takes us to the future first. Yeah, it's not until the later. I think it's the next episode that we go back. That's that's when we he takes us back to the, the pre-industry plants, which we already mentioned. Yeah. Um, in that season, Abaddon launches Prime, which is when we start playing with uh, social media as like cultural and social manipulation. Uh, that's when we take our first trip to heaven. Oh, this is the season. We're also at the same time that we're trying to uh, introduce. No, maybe that's the next one. Maybe we're playing with uh, the hero's journey when we part with, we're with Plato. Yeah, if we're trying to incorporate NFTs. And we're playing with Hero's Journey in this season yes, as well. Yes, this, this is our first attempt at the Hero's Journey. Yeah, so he takes us to heaven uh, to meet with a goddess. Uh, introduction of Yippie Coyote, the Acme killer who gets phased out and turned into a shadow cabal called, <laughs> just called Acme. Um, yeah, that was wild. We go through the delimiting saga, which pr pre uh, proposes the Pseudocide Squad, which sort of gets abandoned and turned into something else later. This is also the first appearance of Gollum. Yeah, he was he was our our best interpretation of the most dedicated of NFT bros. Yeah, because our NFTs were representing as MacGuffins, and we 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 figure the ring is one of the the most infamous MacGuffins of all time, and he's yep. one of the most infamous MacGuffin chasers. Yep, nobody chases a MacGuffin quite like Gollum. Uh, towards the end of the season, we beat up Cosby. This is, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't think this is the first occurrence of us like bringing Cosby into the show to beat up, but I, I guess it's the first mention of it in a sum, uh, summary. Yeah. We, we decided to turn Cosby into a super villain because I mean, what else can you do with a guy like that? He was acted like a super villain and the courts, uh, let him get away with it. So we decided we weren't going to. Um, yeah, no, we don't let him get away with shit. He gets his ass beat. And Not because we're advocating violence, only cartoon violence. Of course, only the the cartooniest of violence. Cliff drops and and uh, TNT explosions and nothing else. He has an ice cream truck with a machine gun on it. Yeah, he gives as good as he gets. It's egregious. <laughs> Uh, and that season ends with the battle at Mount Poon, because if you're going to be chasing MacGuffins, um, you have to end at a mountain lava inside it. Of course. And because it's the end, uh, it needs to be a butt joke. Oh, yeah. 
Mount Poon preceded Mount Poon kind of evolved into Aslantis, I believe, right? They are yeah, yeah, they're the that, same place. Eventually, eventually we decided that that must be in fact the mountain that is on Aslantis. The idea was good. I don't think we love the name. Mount Poon was just a little bit too lazy t-shirt. Yeah, and it's it's not even a butt joke. <laughs> no, it's too generic. It's vaginal. I guess so. Yeah, Poonani. Because we were we it was part of the NFT bro thing. Yeah. I mean, Andrew Tate exemplifies it best now. But True. there was a, there was a bit of a, an alpha male sort of thing behind a lot of the NFT bro stuff. And and That's they cool. uh, they think that uh, vagina is some kind of currency that they can accumulate too. And and here at at Snideful, we don't take things down a peg. We peg them. <laughs> Another butt joke. Yeah. Um, so that was that was the end of season three. Going into season four. Yeah, much looked like last time at Mount Poon. There was a there was a calamity that resulted in uh, big outside portals. And, oh yeah, big outside portals and Tucker and Tug up fell through one. Yeah, thanks to Annabelle, she pushed us back into it. Oh, were we about to make it out and we got three hundred kicked? Yeah. Man. She's like, uh, 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 and then kicked us into it, you know. So uh, Elrond and Bazelbub made it out. They were they were in cahoots. They made it out. We got sucked into the outside portal. And then this entire season involves our adventures in this bizarre reality. Yeah, we're separated. The team is separated. Tucker and Todd are stuck in the outside. And then uh, our crew, Columbo and Straight Woman slash Jay, Stan and and Craig and Gigi, they are left to fend for themselves and kind of look for us because without us to look after, their lives are just too easy. Yeah, I guess it's the other. We are left to fend for themselves for ourselves. They are they are left with a fine. I guess we obliged to find these. Yeah, heads. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna assume it went down like, uh, but we have to. And Jay is just like, fine. She was oh. probably enjoying her holiday. Yeah, and so yeah, I I I, for, I forgot until I'm looking at it right now. It, it wasn't just one singular outside event that 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 catastrophe calamity at Mount Poon slash Atlantis started caused a, a ripple effect that caused um, outside events to start ripping open portals all over the planet. Yep, and in a very eerie parallel to what happened in prehistory. The, the barriers between our proper reality and the outside have basically been broken down and now portals are opening up and weird shit's going both ways. We even have a game show where, where you, it involves a portal. I think people have to jump into it. Yeah, there's like a weird love show. Yeah. Val, Valentine. Because <laughs> what, what would you expect certain you know businesses to do if not capitalize on the weirdness? That was the plan. Um, some of these are just bits. The outside version of the Thought Yacht is in the outside. Craig and company, who, yeah, Craig has to travel. Is it Craig shuts down? Oh, right. That wasn't that the inside Craig, the original one? Yeah. He had to to put himself back together. But I think that occurred after we broke him out of fantasology. Oh, that's, yeah, that's that original one. I can't remember why they needed to go to the company. He needed like an update or something like that. I cannot remember. He had gone to work there. Oh, there was going. No, there was. I think there was going to be like like 
he had uh, the ability to track and find us, but he needed to go get the update from the company or something like that. Directly from the company. Could you imagine if you had to do that with all of your stuff? You had to actually go to the company building and plug your shit in there. You mean Apple? Take your take your Samsung over to I don't know wherever and plug it in at the at the home base. That's I guess I guess an update is an update is a different thing. But um, but I think this was like a this was like a part upgrade or something. I can't recall. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, I, uh, it was just for, it's for not important one, for this one. It involved his ability to sort of find us in the outside and track outside stuff. It was yeah. a, it was a very useful and very appropriate to the time update. So not so not a lot of plot stuff happened in this season. It was sort of just exploring other bits. It was an opportunity because everybody was separated to just kind of like kind of explore, explore some characters. of the one off character bits. So we introduced the idea of a Mandalorian or a Mandalorian. I didn't settle on a name. Was I the think idea it was a Mandalorian? A, a, a bounty hunter for lost thoughts and forgotten ideas. In particular, uh, hunts down uh, either perpetrators or victims of the Mandela effect. Yeah. Um, introduction of Nesquik warm bread. We were looking at the the Ukraine situation and looking at some of our, our jokes of political characters that we've got as uh, world leaders and such. And so we were kind of creating different caricatures of them. Uh, we started talking about the notorious turf, who in the beginning we called uh, I th- just BS prowling. Yeah. Um, because we're we're. We were mad at J.K. Rowling, and <laughs> we kind of still are. She's not a very nice lady. No. She's a bully who goes after bullies and perpetuates bullying. Um, and we also played with the idea of social construction while lost in the outside. We said, what if social constructs were constructed in a factory? And then just kind of like lost that idea by the wayside. It was um, it was fun while it lasted, but there's only so much you can squeeze out of that factory. Yeah, it was during this time that we introduced the idea of chronological and alphabetical orders, which, as we discussed, ended up becoming two like rivaling cults that value different organizations of time. Yeah, uh, they wanted to. Well, the chronological order was fine with the way time is already ordered. It's chronological. Yeah. They wanted to protect and preserve the natural order of that while the alphabetical order are absolutely insane and wanted to rearrange all of creation alphabetically. That includes history, which would result in the very first thing ever happening in history being, ah, they're out of control, but they don't last. Now, we have, I have here that Phantasology forges the mop of the apprentice. That was the idea of like the, uh, the, magici- the, the, the magician's apprentice bucket and a mop from Fantasia. Yeah. Um, to clean up the the WAP, that also idea introduced the idea of bounty killers because I remember something about or bounty hunters like the bounty the quicker picker upper were like were like paper towel assassins or whatever. Um, these, these guys were being correctly armed for dealing with a sea monster water elemental. Right when it was in, just in a sea water elemental. Yeah, in the funniest ways we could think of, which was bucket and a mop because I mean, that's what's in the song. And what else do you need? I don't know. Paper towels. Something yeah. absorbent. Pick it up. And so after that, Basil Bub, this is the first time that Basil Bub teams up with the turf. Uh, BS Prowling at the time. Become, I'm just going to start calling her Villanica. Obviosa. Obviosa. Yeah, we want to. It's Obviosa. <laughs> um, it's Obviosa. 
it seemed like it, it, it made sense for her to be in line with the devil. Oh, yeah. And it made perfect sense for the devil to want to have business with her. And the, the finale of this episode is where we introduced the idea that there was going to be a restore point. I don't know if we said that maybe it had started counting down toward that point, like for previously in that season. But the, the restore point was going to depend on whether or not um, the MacGuffin that we were carrying was brought through the portal. Yeah, there was uh, it was a sort of almost like a conditional checklist to restore to reset. And the very last check happened to be that MacGuffin coming back through the outside portal. That was that was Tucker and Todd. They went into like we decided to ape the Temple of Doom. Kind of, we wanted to we wanted to play Indiana Jones with them. I don't remember what the MacGuffin actually even was for that. Yeah, I think it was just like a token of some kind. Yeah, just like a floating video game doodad. We wanted this to be a video game level. Really, they went through all kinds of you know pitfalls and platforming challenges i think they had a riddle that they just kind of bamboozled their way through <laughs> i don't actually remember any of that but they they collected the doodad they managed to make it back out and as soon as that doodad made contact with you know our reality it, that was the last trigger and bam restore activated everything gets wiped everything gets wiped back to the point that we started the podcast yeah, this was our this was our excuse to go back and take everything we had learned about our collaborative writing style to refine a lot of our good ideas that we did not think were done as well as they could have been. Yeah, that was the point where it was kind of like maybe instead of just sort of ad hoc stumbling our way through what this is, let's lay down a plan and actually say this is going to be a show that has a, a specific beginning and works its way towards it because we didn't know before that we were going to be able to have recurring characters with overarching plots and all those things that kind of like came in halfway through the second season so uh that was the point where we said let's let's do a canonical reset where where the the god computer that we've established goes back to a restore point and we can kind of like logically assemble all our favorite bits into uh a uh, continuous story yeah a more a more cohesive narrative so that launched us into a new phase. And from that point, like this is technically what we would call season five of the podcast. But since it's starting season one of the show, it, this is just season one. Yeah. Uh, which, which begins with the great restore point, which includes bits. We go back to Craigslist. We introduce Francis, who is a dead horse because we were making jokes about beating a dead horse. Francis is married to him. No, dead horse. you're right. He, Francis he's a wife beaten piece of shit. That he is. The dead horse doesn't deserve what she got. Not at all. Although, you know, her reaction to our stuff, I mean. Is unrelated. I wouldn't um, smack her for it. No, I wouldn't smack her for anything. There's no reason to smack a dead horse. There's, uh, there's, frankly, there's no good reason to smack anybody. Straight detective finally figures out uh, or is finally re refines her first case. Oh, yeah. Um, we gave her her own entire first episode basically miranda was no longer just a, a joke character she became the the damsel in dress in this first noir case it was fantastic uh, that was we, that was that also had uh, a, a guest role by francis yeah francis shows up in the end of that no in the middle of that Is as, it a the middle? As, as a disappointed rodeo man i guess sort of the right middle. 
the rising right. action. Yeah, he is a disappointed <laughs> rodeo man. I don't think he got to do anything. No. Um, we 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 gave canonical introductions to Columbo and Stan in in the previous seasons. They had just sort of like come out of nowhere. As yeah, we they said. were just there. Yeah. Um, as sort of like, haha, funny gag joke, <laughs> or visual gag or whatever. Uh, we gave them a reason in their sort of episode. Yeah, Columbo has his own episode to introduce how he comes into our life. Uh, and him coming into our life necessitates sort of unlocks Stan as well. Yeah, it, uh, it's almost like they are being restored to our life. Because they, they get greeted as kind of familiar characters. Because Stan's a, uh, an animated stuffed bear. During, before we bring him back, he's just a regular stuffed bear that we happen to have. Don't know why we like him and want him so much, but we have him. Uh, we actually we actually stole him from Craig. Yeah, we stole him with Craig. Uh, next came we need we wanted to give a straight detective sort of like a mentor relationship with Columbo since he was a famous detective. So uh, actually, the the my friend who voices. J slash straight detective. I asked her about some of her favorite. She's really into uh, paranormal investigations and those types of things. So I said, what is one of your favorite who knows what's going on? And she said the Tunguska event, right? Is that the right one? Yeah, yeah, that was the one. And so uh, we had her on and kind of crafted a whole narrative around how Columbo and uh, straight detective would together be kind of investigating a bizarre ghostly whodunit uh or maybe even borrowing our idea of uh, intentionally fudging cases. Yeah, um, it, it was a, uh, a, a brushed under the rug cold case that Columbo had helped cover up, but now years later had agreed to see to its conclusion. Yeah, so she got to join along. Um, and that's where we kind of tied together. We had an old bit where uh, Fox uh, and uh, the Simpsons had um, sort of, uh, there was a conspiracy going on that included the disappearance of the person who played, what's his name? <laughs> Apu? Apu, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that version of Fox kind of tumbled into foe or Fox, or whatever we're calling it, uh, who was also in alignment with the Turf, who was now renamed Velanica Obviosa. Oh, yeah, um, Abaddon and, and Obviosa. We're all using kind of like shared facilities. Uh, we had an old bit in one of our earlier seasons called the Butterfly Effect uh, slash Tuckerfly Effect, and we turned that into the B Agency, who are an eldritch... Research they're, and development agency. <laughs> yeah, they're uh, they're kind of like time. They're like a time mafia. They have plans for humanity and and homeworld that don't necessarily coincide with what we might want from it. And they so, specialize in in uh, marketing and social engineering, zeitgeist manipulation. Yeah, and yeah, they'll do it through. They'll do it at different points in time if they have to. Um. And that's the first time that we also tie Columbo into that organization. Yeah, being an, an Eldritch being himself, he's got a couple of ties. Although they are severed in that episode, he gets sanctioned. Now, I've written here that the noisemaker opened TNT's eyes to their power, but I think it also draws the attention of the entire world to... Oh, yeah, Tucker and Todd are in the news in the wake of that. Yeah. They accidentally create the noisemaker, who was the... Uh, 
the odd man out from the what was it? The the butcher, the, the baker, ba- the and the booker, candlestick. Yeah, there. yeah, those three went on to infamy and success, and the noisemaker just kind of was a tag along. Tucker and Todd created him, and then he shows up. He's quite sad. They pep talk him. You know, be your own guy. Don't just live in their shadow. Do your own thing. And then he goes off and he has a triple homicide where he kills all three of them. <laughs> and he names Tucker and Todd in his manifesto. And then suddenly the because <laughs> now Tucker and Todd have created all four of them. Three of them are dead. And now they're on the news. They're there. Uh, the season ends with news choppers flying around the studio and reporters coming up to their front door. Which allows us in the next season to introduce our new like main news anchor, Anderson Coopest. Because Anderson Cooper really is my favorite news anchor. He's a, he's a good lad. Um, but his does he immediately get? How does that work? I don't even remember the order which he becomes Paperboy. He gets ousted. Oh, because he's such a good boy. We we painted the news media in a. In in a poor light saying they're so corrupt and everything they do is for uh commercial gain or whatever yeah uh, they're, or they're, to, they're always profiteering and they're uh cutthroat always pandering except for anderson cooper the fact that anderson cooper has integrity he of course is ethically incompatible with this system so eventually they kick him out because there's not enough room for him in that world no there's no country for good men um so he's and he gets a new job as a paperboy. And guess what happens to him? He gets. He becomes he... paperboy. He winds up at the facility, and that that the mutants and monsters unleashed in the D and D game that all right. happens again. This is season two, so it's our our reset version of season two, which includes this uh, sabotage in the studio and the uh, um, what's it called? The obliteration of. He just—he's just an innocent man trying to deliver. He's yeah. He's, he's just trying to make apart. a delivery at this facility, which also happens to be where Tucker and Todd's D and D game has taken place. Havoc is released at this Taint facility. Koopas uh, winds up being absorbed into a big pile of all these monsters and becomes Paperboy. I think we're gonna—we're gonna have to do a part two of this. I think so too. Yeah, I'm—I'm I'm wiped. <laughs> There's so much. Why did we so, write so much stuff? So that'll be, yeah. Thanks for joining us, everyone. There will be a part two of this. Catch us in the next one. Have a good time. Adios. Bye.